0: Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, Bethany, as we uh, bring to a conclusion this week and next the series that we've been considering, Soil Care for the Soul, regarding spiritual disciplines. This morning, we're looking at hospitality and solitude, and these two things go together quite well. We heard uh, Phil just read the scripture, invite people over who can't repay you, Perfect for Thanksgiving week. You could probably add to that list annoying relatives. That would fit in the category as well. But uh, what does it mean to be people of hospitality and solitude? Uh, let's pray together. We'll look at this. Father, thank you that we can gather within these walls. We ask and pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Father. Give us uh, ears to hear what you're saying to us, Father, as we seek to be people of hope in a world that increasingly seems to be characterized by anxiety and fear and despair would you shape us father we pray in christ's name amen one of my favorite theologians dietrich bonhoeffer uh, once said famously by now uh, if you love to be alone seek community if you love to be in community seek solitude i'm just curious how many of you in the in the room when you hear that how many would resonate with the first half you love to be alone. Who loves to be alone in the room? So, and I'm one of those, we gotta seek community. I'm assuming the rest, but for the sake of the visual effect, uh, who who loves to be in community? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, and so for you, the the part of this sermon that may be most convicting will be the part about solitude. But uh, when I I, uh, was on sabbatical, uh, traveled for many days uh, in huts, staying in huts with my wife, and the huts, you think of a hut, it's more like a youth hostel really, and and every night, dinner with people from all over the world, so a great deal of community and a great deal of hospitality afforded to us, Uh, and then at the end of my sabbatical time, uh, my wife flew home, and I had uh, time in solitude as well. So I learned a little bit about this ecosystem, and what I begin to see is that solitude and hospitality do exist in a way uh, as an ecosystem, each informing the other. And uh, our lives, increasingly, if we're going to embody kind of this spaciousness, love, and generosity that is God's intent for us, then we we need to embrace both solitude and hospitality. And this morning, as we consider this together, there's a, there's a link between the two. So we will look this morning at the why of solitude, the hospitality of God, and the why of hospitality. The why of solitude, the hospitality of God, the why of hospitality. And we begin with the why of solitude. In other words, there, there was, the word is self-evident. We're called at times to withdraw and be alone. But what I want to do is I want to spend some time giving you four reasons that... Uh, Solitude is very, very, important in our lives. us in the room uh, are afraid of withdrawing and being alone. There's something scary that happens. And so I'd like to just kind of explain here why this is very important. And there's four reasons. Here's the first reason. The first reason for solitude. Because there's only one voice in your life that matters, and that's the voice of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 is where the Apostle Paul says, don't allow yourself to be conformed to the world in which you live. In other words, we live in a world that has values. And the values are axiomatic in our world. In other words, they're just givens. Yeah, this is what you do. You 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 go to school, you get a degree, you get a good job, you get up with like mobile. Uh, You get married, you have kids, you teach them to go to school and get a a good job and get upwardly mobile so that from generation to generation to generation, you can, you know, create more stuff and enjoy life and this is the life for which uh, you're created and maybe, but really the only voice that matters is what God has to say about your life and your calling and not everyone is called by any means to the same path and it becomes critical, kind of mission critical for us to learn to listen to God's voice so we will be shaped by, by God. The classic example of this, in my mind, in the, in the Bible is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is our example of someone who practiced solitude on a regular basis. It says, as was his custom, he would go out alone into the mountains, I might add, just so you know, into the mountains. He would go alone in the mountains and pray, Right? Uh, and 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 so Mark chapter one, you, you find this, and uh, Jesus is in a very kind of intense adrenaline moment. Verse twenty nine, crowds are healed. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, is uh, a whole a whole city is coming, bringing people to the to, to the house where he's staying, and uh, there's a woman there who's sick, and he. And and he healed her, and when evening came, they began bringing to him all who were ill and demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. He healed many who were ill with various diseases, uh, and he cast out many demons. And early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left uh, the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying." So you you picture it, right? Jesus heals someone, and then that healing kind of goes viral, if I can say it that way. And so the rest of the the whole town now knows that there's a healer in this particular house. And so everybody who's got a friend who's sick is now coming to this house. And Jesus spends late in the night, he's healing people, healing people, casting out demons, uh, teaching. It's a busy, busy evening for him. And this is kind of, from a quote-unquote marketing perspective, building momentum. Does this make sense? So that the next morning, there's an even larger crowd than there was the night before. Every politician would love this, right? Some pastors would love this. But apparently not Jesus. Because what happens is the whole, it says, the whole town, a great multitude is at the door. Simon Peter uh, goes to Jesus' room. Jesus isn't there. Where's Jesus? Well, Jesus comes back from the from the prayer time out of the wilderness. And Pe- uh, Peter's a little annoyed with Jesus. Jesus, everybody's waiting for you. Come on. It's another day of ministry. Here's Jesus. We're leaving. Back, we're going to the back door <laughs> without meeting any of these needs. Man, let's just say it. Jesus has great refusal skills. Does that make sense? Like, are you kidding me? This, like, if you're, if you're working for a television station, this is market share time, right? Like, we're going to capture the market share right here. This is, this is the time. The, our ratings are going to go through the roof. I'm going to heal even more. Send them out. Empower them to give the message. And what, what does Jesus do? He says, no, we're going out the back door. Here's why. Because I must go somewhere else and preach to towns nearby. That's what I came for. How can you be kind of that centered, that called to the point where you, you listen to the voice of God and you know you're calling, and you know you're calling well enough to say no to obvious opportunities. How does that happen? The habit of solitude, that's how. Like only to the extent that I'm willing to discipline my life so that I, I listen for the voice of God. When I listen for the voice of God, I can hear the voice of God. When I hear the voice of God, the voice of God becomes the determinate voice in my life. But the only way I develop a habit of listening for the voice of God is, is, to, is to silence all the other voices, to turn off the music, to turn off the television, to turn, to turn off all forms of media, and to get alone and, and in, in a discipline of solitude and prayer, learn to hear God's voice. It takes practice. We ran a ropes course for a number of years in a wilderness ministry that we had. And one of my favorite things to do is we'd put people on, on a, you're walking on a couple of ropes here, and then you're, you've got little things that you can hang on here to provide three points of contact, little swinging ropes. And uh, we, we would we'd take somebody, we'd not just put them on a ropes course, but they'd be blindfolded. And then, and then we'd say, okay, now you're blindfolded, and... The, the entire group that you're with, they're all going to be lying to you about where to put your hands. In other words, you're supposed to listen for direction. They'll all be lying, except one. There'll be one voice telling you the truth. So you're listening for His voice. And what you have to do then is learn, right? Learn to what? To hear His voice. Here's what we discovered. People who were listening to the voice of a close friend succeeded. But if I I gave you, as your true voice, the voice of someone that you didn't know, it got lost in the cacophony of all the other voices. Isn't that fascinating to you? What does that tell us? That tells us that there's, like, I have to develop a habit of listening to the one voice that matters most. That's Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of my mind. How is my mind renewed? My mind was renewed by listening for the voice of Christ. How do, I le- how do I learn to listen for the voice of Christ? By shutting out all other voices. That's how. That requires solitude. So, uh, first reason why solitude? Because there's only one voice that matters. Second reason solitude is important is because we're all alone at some level. Everybody's alone. I mean, we think, you know, we, we live in kind of this illus- illusion that companionship is a constant. But remember Job chapter 1, verse 21. How did you come into the world? Naked. How are you going to leave? Naked. Uh, and in between, along the way, if you just look at the scriptures over and over and over and over again, you find that the people that God uses understood that the kind of the foundational level, if you think of your life as a pyramid, the foundational level is your relationship with God that's the one relationship that will never leave you. So you look at Abraham, alone with God. Moses, alone with God. David, alone with God. Elijah, alone with God. Jesus, alone with God. Remember Jesus, uh, in the garden, he pulls his disciples aside just on the night that he's gonna be arrested. And he says, I need to go pray. And he says to his disciples, would you just watch with me, pray with me? Matthew, uh, I think, what is it, 26 or so? Matthew 26, verse 39, 40. Jesus goes, he just goes a little further into the garden, and he prays, and when he comes back, what everybody's what, asleep. And what does Jesus say? He says, look, couldn't you even stick with me for one hour? No, apparently not. And listen, if the disciples let Jesus down and couldn't stay awake for an hour on the night of his betrayal... Then I wonder, uh, do you think everyone's going to stick with you all the time? My dad didn't stick with me. He died when he was 52. My sister didn't stick with me. She died when she was 42. My friend Hans Peter didn't stay with me, my best friend (coughs) in Austria. He died when he was 53. Paragliding accident. For some of you, your spouse didn't stay with you or your best friend didn't stay with you, or your child didn't stay with you. The reality is the fabric of love relationships that are our lives are almost always at some point torn apart. It's just a reality. It isn't a matter of if as much as when. I don't mean to be depressing you. It's not intended to be depressing. Jesus never promised us immunity from suffering, Never. It instead promises to shepherd us in the midst of all of it, as we'll see in just a minute. So that so remember what David says? Even if I this is Psalm 23, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will I will, do you know the rest? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you, God, are with me. You're with me. So the 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 the, the promise is companionship that, that is like transcendent irrespective of situation circumstance there's one who's always there and uh, solitude is not a matter of emptying our lives entirely solitude is a matter of withdrawing from every other voice so that we can nurture the one relationship that's eternal relationship with christ so solitude is not isolation solitude is a withdrawal into a relationship with jesus so uh, there's only one voice that matters. We're all alone. Third reason solitude's important is solitude grounds us so that our light can shine uh, with increasing clarity. I want to read from this wonderful new book, The Map is Not the Journey, just for a moment here. Just, but, so just listen as I read this. We start uh, being too impressed by the results of our work. We slowly come to the erroneous conviction that life is one big scoreboard where someone's listing the points to measure our worth. And before we're fully aware of it, we've sold our soul to the many grade givers. This means we're not only in the world, but we've become what? Of the world. And then we become, at that point, what the world makes us. We're intelligent because the world gives us a high grade. We're helpful because someone says thanks. We're likable because someone likes us. We're important because someone considers us indispensable. In short, (coughs) we're worthwhile because we have success. And the more we allow our accomplishments, the results of our actions, to become the criteria of our self-esteem, the more we are going to walk on our mental and spiritual toes, never sure if we're able to live up to the expectations which were created by our last success. Does this sound familiar to anybody in the room? Allowing the culture in which we live to define us. Oh, yeah, you're successful because you got a raise. You're successful because you got a promotion. You're successful because you you got a degree. You're likable because someone says, "I, I like you. What this creates is what I call the empty cup syndrome. In other words, we live our lives then entirely informed by the affirmation of other people. And to the extent that I am dependent on your affirmation, I'm no longer leading. I'm no longer serving. I'm no longer actually hospitable. I'm living my life out of profound insecurity. And I would argue that that characterizes much of the world in which we find ourselves. Empty cup syndrome. Allowing ourselves to be defined by what other people say about us. And Jesus wants to come along and totally free us from that. Psalm 48, uh, uh, verse 14, governs me a little bit in this. And if I could just read for you. Uh, Such as our God, our God forever and ever, our God will guide us until death. So who's guiding my life? What voice is determining my worth? It's a hugely important question. And the habit of solitude kind of trains us to listen for the for the voice of God, and when we listen for the voice of God, then we have what it takes, right? We're 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 not now directed by the many many voices of culture, which by the way are often contradictory anyway. We're directed instead by the voice by the voice of God. Um, and then finally, here this is kind of a caveat, the warning that comes on the label of sol- solitude. Solitude reveals the darkness of our hearts. Like when you really ask people, hey, why do you resist getting off and being alone? People will say, you know what, alone is hard. Because when I get alone, uh, voices of shame and guilt and condemnation start echoing around in my, how many, anybody identify with this in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's "It's kind of hard to be alone because I, I don't like being alone because I don't like what I hear inside. And, and, and so this is why most people say, and most people do say, they're afraid to be alone. And by alone, again, we mean alone, <laughs> not. It means no phone, no music, no books, no TV, just you and God, and your thoughts. And it's there. We often hear these dark voices: voices of shame, voices of condemnation, voice of anger, bitterness, rage, lust. But the great here's the great promise. In that solitude, I, I, I step away from all the other voices, and I'm moving toward God's voice. But now, if, you, if we could just acknowledge this reality, as I step away from the other voices, before I'm really hearing God's voice, there's this intermediary time. And this intermediary time is very difficult because it's in this time, away from the other voices, that the voices of shame and lust, what I call old tapes that start playing in my head, right? I mean, I had a parent who said, you're not enough. Or I had a spouse who said, uh, you're not enough. Or a boss who, who said, you're a failure. Or a church that said, you know, you're guilty. And I was shamed because of whatever thing happened. And, and now these voices begin echoing in our heads. And here's the deal. These are voices actually that have, these are voices having to do with darkness. But there's a beautiful promise in Ephesians chapter five. Verses 1 through 3, and I just want to, you can take it home and chew on it a little bit. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, look, uh, be done with deeds of darkness. Uh, and then it says, because your children are light, as you, as you bring the deeds of darkness, this, this is the principle, as you bring the deeds of darkness into the light, whatever becomes visible, watch this, whatever becomes visible becomes light. Isn't that a powerful promise. So, like, I was dealing with all this shame, all this self-loathing, all this you're not enough, but I'd never really faced it. Why? Because I, I, I never, I, there was never any solitude in my life. And so, these voices that, that needed to be dealt with, they remained lurking deep inside of me, and I just went to parties and, and, and got my cup filled with the affirmation of other people, But now, as I begin to practice the discipline of solitude, in this intermediary stage, when I'm no longer listening to the surrounding voices, but not yet hearing God's voice with with adequate clarity, what enables me to ultimately hear God's voice is right here, all this this darkness. We need it. We need to face that darkness because whatever was in the darkness and is brought into the light, whatever brought into the light, literally becomes light. So in my own story, you know, as my, as my dad died and I kind of went into this deep depression, like in that depression is where all these voices of inadequacy and shame began echoing around. And that became the very fertile soil where I heard a sermon on Jeremiah chapter 9 and a pastor saying, God wants to be, listen, your very best friend, God was be your best friend. And that, I was so hungry for that in that moment that the soil of my heart was fertile to receive that invitation to make knowing God the number one priority in my life. And I would say it changed the course of my life forever. But, but the beauty of knowing companionship with Christ came on the far side of kind of that very dark season, do you see, that was this kind of forced solitude when my dad, who was my best friend, died. So, don't be afraid of solitude because what happens is in your solitude, you meet what is the second truth we consider this morning. In your solitude, you you learn to accept the hospitality of God. That's what happens in your solitude. Learn to accept the hospitality of God. The great example of this in the Bible is the prophet Elijah. And if you know his story in... uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah in the nation of Israel is confronting uh, the leaders of Israel who on the one hand want to worship Jehovah, but on the other hand are also drawn to the the false gods of Baal. So the the leaders of the nation are wavering between uh, uh, Jehovah and Baal. And if you know the story, uh, Elijah... He Cha- basically challenges the 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 leaders uh, of who are worshiping Baal to a contest. It's like a like a like a power play, right? Where he says, "Okay, uh, we're both going to build an offering on this mountain, and uh, uh, we'll put some wood on a on a in a kind of fire pit, and uh, Baal." You call out to your God, and if uh, your God lights your fire, then that's the true God. I'll call out to my God, and if my God lights the fire, that's the true God. You guys, most of you know the story. For those of you who don't, it's the story's hysterically funny, actually, because because uh, you could just picture Elijah sitting in a lounge chair, is how kind of I see him, as as these prophets of Baal are like... They're trying to impress their their gods by mutilating themselves. And like all day long, they're calling, Baal, come down with your fire. Come on, come on, you know, and there's nothing's happening. And, And then Elijah says, hey, what's up with your gods? You know, are they on vacation? Is it time off? Are they sick today? You know, what's going on? And then Elijah pours water, you know, seven tubs of water on the wood to get it good and soaked. And then he just offers a prayer. He says, God, my paraphrase, right? But God, show him your stuff. Boom! All, like the wood is gone. Just immediately turns to ashes. So then, you know, Elijah says to Israel, who's now persuaded that um, Jehovah's God, so Elijah says, so kill the false prophets. You know, and 400 prophets dead. Okay, this is like in the annals of, You know, ministry history, this is a good day, right? Like, God is vindicated, false prophets are dead, revival in the nation of Israel, you know, win, win, win. Like, if we did this, if we had a staff meeting on Monday and that was our Sunday, it would be a celebrating staff meeting. We'd be like, yeah, this is good. Yeah, what a great weekend. Yeah, good things happen. So, however... Uh, if you know the story, you know, like this is also like an adrenaline thing for Elijah. So the next day, um, King Ahab, who's bad news, his wife Jezebel, who's worse news, she's really angry that these prophets have been killed, and she says, by sundown, he's dead. So Elijah, who's like, he took on 400 prophets, but now he's tired, and he's out of, he, like he starts running. And so he just ran and ran and ran for days, and then he, he sat under a tree, and he just wanted to die, right? Now, I wish I had time to unpack this whole story much more than I do this morning, because it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We'll have to look at this more thoroughly in the future. But, but the point for the moment here is this. Elijah withdraws into solitude. And when he withdraws into solitude, this is what I love about this. When he withdraws into solitude, who's there to meet him? God is there, right? He's running, 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 running. And then as soon as he stops, he's, he's in a cave. He just wants to die. God meets him there. And not just meets him there, but meets him, first, of all, first of all, meets him very practically, he says, Elijah, you're hungry, man. You know you, you know, you say you want to die. You don't want to die. You just have low blood sugar right now. So have a cookie. Have, some, have, have a cookie and some milk. It makes everybody happy, right? And so then Elijah eats, and then he takes a nap. Take a nap. And then he takes a nap, and then he wakes up. Have another cookie. And then he eats a little bit more. And then God says to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah pours out his heart to God. And it's just this beautiful, poignant moment. But here's the point. Psalm 139. Where, it's a rhetorical question asked by David. Where can I run from your presence, God? Where can I? Like, even if I wanted to be all alone, where there is not even God, so that, so that my, my condemning thoughts or my arrogant thoughts or my ambitious thoughts could just echo around in my head and determine my life, where can I go, God, that you're not there? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is what? Nowhere. Everywhere I go, God is there. Why? Because God wants to meet us and is willing and able profoundly to offer the perfect space of hospitality for my soul. In whatever condition my soul is in, God meets me there. I love that. (laughs) Are you discouraged? God will meet you there. Feeling condemned? God will meet you there. Filled with shame? God will meet you there. Overwhelmed with your success? God will meet you there. Want to quit your job? God will meet you there. This has been the way of it throughout history. All the saints live a life that testifies that God meets them in their point of darkest need. Everyone. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Jesus, Jeremiah, Elijah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Sophie Scholl, Jim Elliott, Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa. (laughs) They all suffered And none of them ever said that because they followed Jesus, their life was easy. No, no. This is what they said. Not that life was easy, but that they were never, ever, what? Alone. Never alone. Yeah. That's the point. The good news, that is the gospel, is not Jesus saying, hey, come to me, and I'm going to wrap you in cellophane so you never have to suffer again. The good news of the gospel is this. Come to me and I will be your companion through the valley of the shadow of death. In sickness and in health. In riches and in poverty. For better and for worse. Why? Because I, Christ, am your husband. (laughs) And I'm entering a covenant. I will never leave you. That's the hospitality of God. So here's what happens. We practice solitude in our solitude, we discover the hospitality of God. And then, because of the hospitality of God, we enter into our calling to be hospitable people. And that's the why of hospitality. We're hospitable because God was hospitable to us. First um, Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight, is where the apostle Paul says, uh, we were delighted when we were among you in Thessalonica, To share with you not only the gospel, this is one of my favorite verses, to share with you not only the gospel, but what? Our very lives. That single verse uh, determined uh, like a six or seven year period in my wife's life and mine uh, as we practiced a radical hospitality ministry. It was called the Lathe Fellowship. We lived east of Mount Vernon up uh, in the Cascades right by the, the doors of... North Cascades National Park and what the reason we went there is in the 80s when kind of cable TV and televangelists were growing in popularity. uh, Everybody who was like known on television was also guilty of some kind of a scandal at the time. There were sex scandals and there were money scandals. and There were power scandals. And so we were finding Friday Harbor where we lived that the gospel had lost its credibility because it was like a talking head up there, but behind the curtain was corruption everywhere. And we thought to ourselves and prayed about it, you know, how amazing would it be uh, to open our home, literally open our home and have people at our dinner table so they could understand that the teaching that is happening isn't just divorced from life, but that the teaching is like there's implications. It changes the way we relate to people. It changes the way we raise our children. And so, you know, it was not uncommon for seven years for us to have 30 people at our dinner table, and by the way, not people of our choosing. Like, it, it was open season. Anybody could come. And so we had uh, annoying people come, <laughs> and we had demon-possessed people come, and we had arrogant people come, and we had rich people come, and we had poor people come, we had all kinds of people come. And This is, hosp- this is radical hospitality. And I'll just tell you, uh, when you practice hospitality in this manner, there's a cost and there's a, there's a joy. There's a cost and there's a joy. I'll give you uh, examples from two different Christmases. The, the joy is uh, you find people reciprocating that hospitality in remarkable ways. I spoke one year uh, at Mount Baker Skier at a, on Christmas Eve, the conference ended on Christmas Eve day. And then we had to drive back down to Billingham, down to Mount Vernon, and then back up the other way. And uh, on the way down, uh, I hit some black ice and got in a little, uh, it was a little, but a head-on collision, got a little head-on collision, right? And uh, uh, the, it was a Volvo, and I had a Volkswagen Fox, and this Volvo. We, we hit, and the Volvo, just the little grill on the lights fell off. That's the only damage to the car the Volkswagen Fox crumpled the entire engine well, and it was our, my car was rendered undrivable. right? So we had to call the tow truck and Washington Patrol, and, you know, we were supposed to get home by 2. And to make a long story short, we got home at 11 p.m. We got people in our house from Australia, from Germany, from Sweden, from Vietnam, and we were going to cook them Christmas dinner, and we're not home until 11 p.m. And this is before cell phones, so they didn't, I don't know what if they knew where we were or whatever. We get home, we're exhausted, we had three little kids in the back seat, everybody's tired. You know what, they waited for us. And as soon as we got home, they, they cooked the meal. They cooked us a meal. And so it's early on Christmas morning, like one in the morning, and we're eating you know, salmon and sharing stories, and we're reading the Christmas story in every language. And we're seeing Silent Night together. So this is like one of the epic moments of my life. The body of Christ united. That's the joy of hospitality. Like, when you share your life freely, you discover Jesus in ways you never would if you insisted on control. You just discover Jesus in new ways. That's good news. Now, there's a cost. Because also when you're open this way, anyone can come in at any time. We lived you know, Far East, and there's a kind of general principle uh, that the further you get away from the I-5 quarter, up into the Cascades, there's a higher proportion of paranoid people who live there. (laughs) That's just a principle. I don't know why it's that way, but it is that way. So uh, there was a guy who lived up there who had, you know, tripwire. He's a Vietnam vet. He had wire around his property and a lot of guns and and listen to kind of wacky, ultra-right, fundamentalist radio. And uh, But he came, but we had a house church, and he often came on Sunday morning. And you're never quite sure which version of him would show up, right? So anyway, it's one Christmas morning now. And my, uh, my sister and her four kids are there, and us with our three kids. And it's like a typical... Christmas thing, and we're right on Highway Twenty, and you can see the big Christmas tree in the window, and it's Christmas morning, and we're you know we're opening presents, and then this guy comes, and I recognize his car. He comes drive by super fast, slams on the brakes, reverse, pulls into the driveway. I look, oh, here he comes. Whatever his name is, we'll call him. uh, We'll just call him Scott for now, just for I don't I don't know what his name is. Here he comes. Like, it's rain, it's shades on, you know, and he's mad. Comes up the stairs, walks in the house, has a gun. Like, these are my little kids. And I don't know if you know me well enough to know this, but I don't have a gun, all right? <laughs> never did, never, probably never will. Uh, so he's got a gun, and he goes, ah, oh, I knew it, I knew it. He's still got his shades on. I said, well, you knew what? I knew you were a false prophet. We're going to end this now. He's got a gun. We're going to end this now. I don't like that combo, right? <laughs> My kids are all there. What do you mean, false prophet? On the tree. And then he quotes something about phallic symbols in Jeremiah. And he says, yeah, yeah, I knew it all along. And then I said, hey, come on, Scott. Let's go outside. So we go outside. I said, take your sunglasses off. He takes his sunglasses off. I said, Scott, it's me, Richard. We have meals together, man. I know your whole story. Vietnam. I know your pain. You know I care for you. You know I'm not a false prophet. Yeah. Yeah. I know, he says. I'm sorry. And then we had a long conversation. And then he put his gun in his car. (laughs) And then he came up and hugged everybody, and then he drove away. Hospitality. Like, what does that mean? Well, you know, Phil read it. It means making space in our lives, not just for people who look like us, think like us, act like us, earn like us, talk like us. Hospitality means making space for whoever God brings. Whoever God brings. The lovely Swedish-Australian couple who waits up for you and cooks the meal. Yeah, that's hospitality. The wacky tripwire guy with a gun. Yeah, that's hospitality too. Real change Hospitality. Homeless shelter here, (laughs) always needing more of you to serve, that's hospitality. Opening your home at Thanksgiving, hospitality. Uh, But Jesus says, the best hospitality is going to be, watch this, hospitality where you are serving others out of a full cup. That's gonna be the best hospitality. And, and 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 so, yeah, wow, I want a full cup. Where do I get a full cup? Solitude. That's where. By by stepping away from all the media, all the all the all the all the news, all the physical contact with others, and and practicing solitude. Uh, for some of you, your daily solitude practice could actually be your commute. It could be your commute. There's increasing time for solitude every day. <laughs> this is a great, what an, what an opportunity to t- you know, like, turn the radio off and practice solitude. And by practice, I mean, for me anyway, like I have my devotions in the morning, little Bible study, and I, then I try and write a verse down, one verse from my thing, and then I just will meditate on that while I'm alone. Well, and for me, it's running Here. Or hiking up the mountains. But there's a daily solitude. There's a daily short solitude. For me, there's a weekly longer solitude. Often, not every week, but often, where I'll go out skiing alone or hiking alone or uh, just walking alone or running alone on a good long run. Solitude. But it's it's not alone. It's with God to fill this cup. And then for some of you, and for me, two or three times a year, I try and get out for an overnight as well. Uh, and for me, preferably, not a motel, but on the ground somewhere. Solitude fills the cup. Why? Because I'm saying no to all this, and I'm coming now with, an, with, a, with a cup filled with weird thoughts banging around my head, and I'm saying, Jesus, would you replace those thoughts with the fullness of Christ? And now I'm able to go into my world and serve and be the presence of Jesus, which is your calling every single day and available as you enter into the rhythm of solitude and hospitality. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that uh, uh, in a thirsty world, you have filled our cups. And our prayer now, Father, is that you would give each of us with clarity next steps to take in the, in the discipline of solitude and the discipline of hospitality in order that we might serve one another in love and, and, and live lives that are spacious enough to invite others in. Uh, Would you speak to each of us now about next steps we must take? And we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.